This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. On today's episode, BlackBerry's Vice President of Food and Beverage, Andy Chabot, sat down with wine importer and dear friend of BlackBerry, Eric Solomon. They discuss Eric's unconventional path from being a rock drummer to promoting amazing obscure wineries, how he met his wife because of a bottle of wine, and the profound beauty of imperfection. Hello, I'm Andy Chabot. Uh, here this morning with a very special person in the world of food and wine. He is uh, known by a few accolades. Uh, he's, he's been the wine personality of the year uh, by Robert Parker. Uh, he's been food and wine's best importer of the year. He's been nominated several times for James Beard Award for uh, wine spirits professional. Uh, and in, he's a good friend of Blackberry Farms and of mine. Uh, his name's Eric Solomon. Eric, so good to have you. Thank you, Andy. So, Eric, you know, I know you, Eric Solomon, today. You know, the, I think, great wine importer with a list of, you know, top producers uh, in, in the world of wine, uh, most unattainable kind of producers. And, uh, and I thought it would be interesting to sort of delve back into history a little bit because some of the regions, I think, that you represent some of the people you represent, they might be household names, but uh, I'm not sure that was always the case. But I, I want to go even maybe further back uh, and, and just hear, because there are some things I think even I don't know about you, such as... Oh, it's going to be one of those kind of uh, discussions? It may be, yeah. I'm not sure what I don't know about you, but I think there are probably some things. So um, the very thoughtful, seemingly um, gratuitous coffee I was offered was really truth serum. It was, yeah. You'll I'm in, see. I'm in trouble. You'll see soon. Uh, but, but really, where, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, you've asked that. Those are a lot of thought-provoking uh, preludes. So, <laughs> and as the son of two clinical psychologists, I am processing all of this, and I may actually shut down and go into withdrawal here. But Please don't. <laughs> um, so I grew up um, in the South, so one of my many, many attractions to Blackberry Farm and this place and, and the setting, uh, the culture that um, you've created here is, um, I am a product of the American South. Um, my father, uh, who was from New York, uh, graduated from Cornell, um, in, uh, got his doctorate from Cornell as a clinical psychologist. Oh, wow. So his PhD was um, clinical psychology from Cornell. And he had an internship at Duke, Chapel Hill, okay. and then um, we were um, obviously from from birth and our early years. Uh, we grew up between Chapel Hill and Greensboro. He started the That's Department cool. of Psychology at what is now UNCG in the mid oh, okay. fifties. Wow. Okay. You say we? You you have siblings? I, I do have siblings. I'm uh, the oldest, so for a long time I was convinced that I was an only child um, until, <laughs> you know, uh, there was a reoccurring theme at Thanksgiving and there these two other individuals that had the same last name were always there. So, yes, uh, an, an only child in, in heart and spirit, but with two siblings. <laughs> 
So was wine part of your upbringing? Actually, not at all. And in fact, um, I had a great conversation with uh, one of one of the great human beings that happens to be in our industry uh, profession, uh, Frank Stitt, oh, yeah. uh, the acclaimed chef uh, based in Birmingham, lover. Alabama, very much uh, devoted equally to wine as he is to food. And Frank and I, over the years, have become very good friends. And, and as the years and the friendship have evolved, we learned that we're same age. I was technically the better vintage, but we're <laughs> the same age. Um, and, you know, he, like myself, we both grew up in the South. The parallels are, are wonderful. So um, he, we both grew up in the South, but he was exposed to... Uh, a culinary upbringing, even if it was sure. more, you know, the farm side of farm to table. Right. Uh, my parents were intellectuals, both of them. Both were uh, therapists, um, which often explains why I'm in the wine business. Um, it explains what else a lot left. of things, I think. <laughs> but um, I would say that um, we had a rich upbringing uh, intellectually. We were taught to uh, read and and learned uh, if we had a question we were directed to in those days there was no internet of course but a book right. and in the book or the chapters of the book we would find the answer to our question so we were we were given that very rich intellectual You're um, saying empowerment your, your parents sort of directed you they wouldn't as a little the the teach you to fish versus give you a fish a exactly kind of so um, wine was not foreign in our whole household, but it wasn't a part of our lifestyle. I mean, um, they are both born and you know, bred in America right. and did not travel extensively uh, outside the U.S. So they would appreciate going to a good restaurant and a glass of wine, but it wasn't really part of our daily, yeah. even as a young adult, daily I upbringing. I think probably in the United States during that era, it wasn't a part of a lot of people's you know, lives, it seems. Wine consumption in this country just wasn't close to what it is now, is, no, as far in, as I know. In those uh, years and decades, it was, America was, if you think about the shows like Mad Men, for example, yeah, right. America was a spirits drinking, right. you know, martini, the famous two martini lunch. Right. Um, so wine was almost uh, a sort of, wine had two manifestations, either uh, a cry for intervention, and it was all about, um, you know, cheap and cheerful, cheap or and cheerful. it was a somewhat um, elitist. Snooty. Yeah. Kind of elitist. Yeah. yeah, kind of yeah. But it wasn't a comfortable, normal part of a beverage to accompany a, a meal. Right. And that's, that's kind of interesting. I think it, I just maybe follow that, that vein because I had an interest in that is that as you got more into wine later in life, were you battling just just that, not just regions that people didn't know, but just the wine industry as kind of a whole, uh, needing to expand and grow? I mean, do you mean fast forwarding yeah, once fast I've forward, entered the wine can, business? We can get back to that because it's a little later, you know, in your story. Um, but so I was I, interested I in that. Really enjoying wine, I would say. Um, my, my real love and, and intended profession in life uh, was music. Um, sure. In fact, my brother was rummaging through family photographs, which, you know, in that period meant a Polaroid. 
And clearly, yeah. they, they literally fade and disappear over time. So my brother, who's, he's, who's definitely the, the nerdier, geekier of the two of us. Is he really? Very much so. He's, he's an IT genius, and um, I'm an IT disaster. Um, <laughs> and, and he's much smarter um, and practical than I am. But he was basically going through family archives to save them um, during the pandemic when yeah. everyone had time on their side. And he was transferring them to a digital permanent format. And he came across a couple that he sent me a few days ago. And that's um, what you forwarded to me. Which I believe I forwarded to you. So it was, um, we, we've carbon dated them now. I think I was, <laughs> they, there were two photos. One it was Eric Solomon at 11. Okay. And one was, I think, 13. Um, you. And, and you could see upon close examination, the skin was getting um, more troubled in the 13-year-old picture than the 11. So, so music was first. Music was first. Yeah. And where did that come from? I mean, you weren't a wine family. doesn't sound like you were a music family. Actually, either. to the contrary, even though wine um, would appear occasionally um, you know, as a special occasion beverage in the sure. household, um, music was always there. Wow. Uh, neither parent were practitioners, but they both had different types of music they loved. But television existed, but between the two psychologists um, wanting to control how much television, and in hindsight, the in hindsight rightly so, yeah. um, we were we would read and we would hear and listen to music. So we would either actively listen to music or de facto we would be, would be the house the would be full of music always and they also took me to concerts i see from an early age so what drove you to you were you got into percussion into drums what yes yeah, so when my choice. parents would talk about my my love of music they used the, the fancy p word percussion sure because it sounds more erudite and and um noble somehow um with my buddies and and um you know when i would describe my uh my love of music, I was a drummer. Right. And, and so did you have like a group you were playing with or something and, and they needed a percussionist or were you that drawn came to later. I was drum. actually, it was kind of like, um, imagine, you know, when you study martial arts, which I did also, it was one of the things I loved really? growing up. Um, I was at one point uh, taekwondo and semi-competitive kickboxer. Uh, I knew about kickboxing. Yeah, well, because taekwondo, you preceded that and, and sort of classic karate and you know one of the things about martial arts is you spend weeks years um, decades practicing the movement right and so I had that foundation um, and also being in the Boy Scouts and people that know me now um, can't imagine how that organization a allowed me in and B survived <laughs> me but um, I was actually uh, in, at one point, the Eagle Scout program, and there was something called the No Match Club, mm. where we could learn to start a fire right. with no matches, no matches of yes. course. So I, I had that side of me that was very passionate and, and free-spirited, mm -hmm. but I always had an interest in things that demanded uh, focus and grounding. So martial arts, yeah, Boy Scouts. study and um, And I think that... that so to answer your question about music, I practiced in, in martial arts, the kata, I practiced all my rudiments. I took lessons. You yeah. saw the photo. Yeah, I looked, yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked um, 
either scolded or focused, depending on serious was the word that that I used. I think when I saw it, I mean, you weren't, you weren't smiling. It was a classic sort of young guy photo in my opinion. Exactly. I couldn't, I didn't have facial hair, so I had to look, you know, I had to look like, I'm not going to smile because I won't be looking, I won't look serious. Right. But I didn't realize that at the time, but that, that interest in an in application of martial arts and even the structure, if you will, of going through the ranks of the Boy Scouts yeah. um, would serve me because in music, uh, the way I embrace music, I listened voraciously and I mm-hmm. would go to hear live performances from classical to jazz to James Brown. Right. I mean, everything. Um, but then I would sequester in my room and practice, mm. practice just myself, practicing to music. I would take lessons. Um, even at that young age, I was um, taking lessons from the principal percussionist then of the local symphony orchestra. Oh, really? And he in turn would take me to concerts, not just classical, but uh, huh. as I mentioned, James Brown and, and, and to you hear, know, hear a lot of R and B and, and soul and rock. And, and, and so it was this great confluence of, of influence. So it was only later, um, and I think you know, one thing you know about me, Andy, as do others that know me, I love surprises if I plan them. So the first time <laughs> I decided to play with others and then ultimately a live gig, yeah. it was very well practiced. Orchestrated, yeah. I should think. It, yeah. was, it was very well practiced and orchestrated. That's interesting. You know, the the because I do know you and, and how you know, you like to sort of know the outcome a little bit or plan the outcome and then figure out how to get there. Um, you know, the, and then the look playing... as if I'm pleasantly surprised with the exactly. outcome. Well, when it does happen, it must be nice. But, you know, to, to know, you know, you playing a live gig, you know, that kind of a thing. I bet, um, there's always someone in a band that's like, we should practice more, everybody. Was that you? You know, it, it was. And, and again, it was this dichotomy of personality. Um, I, I get bored quickly and I'm restless. Yeah. So the concept of the repetitive um, effort, again, like in martial arts, like in, in graduating uh, through the belt levels mm-hmm. of martial arts or through the different um, levels of Boy Scouts okay. and, and your awards and diplomas mm-hmm. and, and so forth, I don't know where it came from, but there was that side of me that um, practice makes perfection. And I love the concept of pursuing perfection, but only as something that liberates so that you can eventually ad lib. Sure. Because I think if you have the ability to perfect, you know, perhaps as a chef, a dish or a piece of music or as a winemaker, uh, the pursuit of perfection, uh, at the end, you can then choose some human flaws to remain that that make it more soulful and and credible and give you style. I guess give you I mean, style. that's where style comes from. I think you're right. You know, you compare it to chefs or martial arts, or you learn all of the movements. You learn that to become second nature, and then um, then you can apply it. You know, somewhere else. And you, uh, from what I've seen, you also have amazing recall. You have you have really great memory and ability to remember places, things, you know, people. I'm sure that worked well for you in the music side of things as well. And you're thinking about, you know, you went to see these live shows, you went to do this, and then you could probably um, recreate that a little, I would think, in your head. 
It, it's, again, it's a dichotomy. It's so interesting because <clears throat> I've, uh, others have told me that. And I guess it, it, it is true. Um, but I have really good recall for things that were important to me. And it doesn't mean okay. that they needed to be monumental. But, you know, for example, still to this day, you know, you and I would get together and I would taste a wine or listen to a track on an mm -hmm. album and it would transport me to where was I when I first had that wine or where was I when I first heard that cut on an right. album? Uh, what was life like? Where was I? What, you know, all these things I have good recall. And yet that same day that we're, you know, I'm, I'm recalling right. things perhaps decades ago, I couldn't tell you where my keys that <laughs> sure. I was sure were in my pocket an hour ago are. I get that. I and mean, maybe that's where, you know, I've always noticed your recall for, for music. Um, and, and I don't have that same recall. And maybe that's why, I, you know, in my head it stands out. Because I do have that same, you know, thing with wine. Where I can think of, or, you know, our meal. Or here's where we were, who, here's who we had, here's what the second course was. Andy, you're, you're too modest. I am convinced you recall the first meaningful trombone solo you were ever exposed <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't one I was playing, trust me. <laughs> there were never any great ones for me. Um, that's why I didn't pursue that much beyond, uh, you know, high school. But you pursued music. Um, you know, so, you, so your parents, your family, they were supportive? They were... Um, incredibly supportive. Um, I guess one of the, you know, there's always, you know, the columns, which, you know, that, that proverbial... Uh, memo pad and two columns. One says pros God. and one says cons. And, and you know, I kind of approach much of life like that, um, even right. in a virtual sense. But at, there were times I definitely would have uh, ascribed a lot of my upbringing in the con um, in terms of the, that intellectual, that, um, that, you know, basically de facto analysis every day. How do you feel about that? Well, right. I don't know. It's only a piece of broccoli, but how does it? How do you <laughs> how feel about? How does the broccoli make you feel? <laughs> um, sort of but, you know, later I would find that um, even though their upbringing, uh, especially you know my dad's generation, you know the depression and so forth, mm -hmm. and and never knowing what was going to be possible economically, socially, politically. Um, so forth with the war and, and yeah. everything uh, after the depression and then the war and so forth. They were extremely supportive, even though they were practitioners of a classic sort of methodology that you go to school, you know, junior high, high mm -hmm. school, uh, you go to college, uh, you pursue something, you hopefully do well at it and you get a job and you have that security that becomes a career it becomes a career and and you know the concept of they were very very supportive um of me pursuing pursuits that that made me that that allowed me to be curious and satisfied and even though they knew that music was usually not a good recipe rarely still is yeah. for financial, commercial success, and stability, they still encouraged it. I have to give them a lot of credit for that. That's amazing. And so, and so you did pursue it. You, you went to school for it. I did. Um, I, I studied, as I mentioned, privately, um, right. voraciously through my um, early, early to mid-teens. And then uh, in my late teens, I think I was 
just about 18, mm -hmm. 18, 19, I decided that so many of my, my non-classical musical influences came out of England. You know, the great, the great rock bands, rock bands of the you know, late 60s and, and early mid-70s sure. was kind of my, my sweet spot. You and I talk about, you know, wines and decades yeah. or vintages that are particularly yeah. milestone that have formed our, our love of Burgundy or the Rhone. And I have that same, same sort of categorization for periods where my, for me, music in the rock mm -hmm. world was great. And the periods that um, were weak, where the harvests were really meager. Right, right. Bad vintage. Bad vintages. Bad, yeah. So um, I'm like, I'm, I'm drawn to, you know, keep in mind, I was a product of, of that, you know, sort of Woodstock. I was mm -hmm. young, but still influenced. Um, I was the last phase, uh, chronologically, of the draft for Vietnam. Okay. And I actually had a draft card. Really? Um, and, and the war was ended before um, we had to deal with that. Um, but so there was, you know, that the late 60s, that mm -hmm. whole the early, late 60s, early 70s, that sort of um, period was powerful and meaningful on so many levels, socially and culturally. But I would say, for the most part, a lot of my influences and loves of, 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 of music were, you know, colored by the great British bands. Um, and so I decided I need to find a way to go to England to be closer to it. It's like, you know, a wine person like you or I yeah. saying, I've been drinking wines from Burgundy or I Tuscany to, or I Sicily. I need to go see this place. I, I need to pick it. grapes there. I need to, you know, put my hands in that, that rocky volcanic mm -hmm. soil and understand the connection between yeah, that place and the, the product. Yeah. So I did that, and I'm thinking, well, I could just, you know, go and hope for the best. But I took an, initi an initiative, um, and I wrote, you know, you think about kids and, and writing a fan letter to uh, bands. That was quite normal. Mm -hmm. But I did something else. I was a kid who wrote a letter to the principal percussionist of the London Symphony Orchestra. And I basically said, sure. I, I had seen, I had heard about him, of course, it's a highly coveted position, sure. the principal of anything in a world-renowned orchestra. And I was lucky because he didn't really take private students. He was so busy doing the classical music job, mm -hmm. but also he was in high demand. So great rock bands, uh, you know, from Paul McCartney, to Vangelis, yeah. to, um, oh my God, the roster. He was asked to go into the studio so he's and also put down studio, the drum tracks. rock musician. And he was young. I mean, at the time, you know, he was an older guy to me because I was yeah. 18, but Everyone's he was probably late 20s. Right. You know, he was 10 years my senior, right. but he was only in his late 20s. And he must have fortunately thought, this is, this is kind of novel. Yeah. There's some kid I've never heard of writing me, and he wants to come to London and study under me. And he said, why not? That's so cool. okay. So did you, you, do, you went to go study under him? Did you go to school? Or did you just no, go the to school, work? The school was really um, a private tutorial with him. Um, wow. And I would practice, practice. And so because of his connections, I was able to have 
uh, sort of like a master class in person, one-on-one, -on -one, and we would do drills, you know? There'd oh, be a cool. piece of music, and, and we'd go through it, and then he'd, you know, say, Here, here's a record. Of course, we were more dealing with reel-to-reel -reel tape sure. and, and vinyl record, and he said, you know, I'll see you next week between now and then. Sure. I want you to know this inside and out. And then I would be drilled the following week on that passage or that piece, um, much to the chagrin of the neighbors. I believe it. I was, I was wondering that with your family, too, when you were practicing growing up. You had um, a padded room or something. There, there was more than one occasion when they would just say, couldn't you have liked the harmonica? Oh, well, sure. Or the something because not only better. the sound, the decibel level of drums, yeah. but, you know, before you can drive, they had to take me everywhere to and my gigs the to, and, and the, the drums. I mean, it, it was like a safari. <laughs> so... So you're in London. I, you're, I got on a plane. You're playing. I landed in London, uh, 1975 or six, I think. Cool. And and you're learning from this amazing musician, and, and things are going the way you want. But I guess you needed to make money or something. Yes, being um, far away, but wanting to be proud and independent of my parents' financial resources, um, I took, and I had saved money, I'd always worked, like from yeah. 12, 13 years old, whatever it was. You, did, you just did jobs? I always did, yeah, it would be a car wash, or I would yeah. work at uh, some odd job, but I was always, I, I always, always valued independence. Sure, and, uh, and hard work, it sounds like. Somehow. Yeah. Somehow, and, and so um, to make ends meet, to have some you know, pocket money, literally, because, because of my status as an American citizen and the immigration laws and so forth, I, wasn't, I was allowed to go there as a student, so I had a student visa. Okay. That I, I still had that passport, and it's funny, all the stamps. Yeah. And, and you're, they're renewed, 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 denied. Denied. Because at some point, you know, at some point you're not a student. You're anymore. not a student anymore. So um, <laughs> I, I walked into a wine bar, and uh, because I heard that you know, they would hire for you know a position there, which was kind of on the QT. Because um, you. your, your visa wouldn't allow you to Correct. be an employee somewhere. I Correct. Um, and and so while at the wine bar doing you know very perfunctory you know literally pulling corks out of bottles to bankers and stockbrokers and, um, you know, working people in London that would yeah. come in for a lunch. And, and the great thing about England, like Europe in general, but the English really uh, had this down to a, to a science and art, was lunches tended to be about three hours long and they always involved wine. Hmm. Great. Uh, great, unless... <laughs> You're the person the lawyer's trying to defend yeah, later that day. Yeah, an afternoon case, I guess. But So while there, um, you know, as you know, being in, in the wine business as a buyer, as a wine director, the that period between services is usually when the reps, yeah. winemakers and reps would come around to present wine in the hope that, that they would be taken on. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a classic situation. There'd be a quarter table. The least valuable piece of right. real estate in the restaurant, you know, near the kitchen door. And between service, the two owners would sit there, the reps would come in, the wait at the bar one mm -hmm. by one. 
you know, the bottles would come out of the wine bag, the cork come out of the bottles, and the glasses were poured for tasting. Sure. And one of the owners said, Eric, you want to sit in? And, and, and to make a very potentially long story short, that was <laughs> happening three or four times a week. And they saw I had an interest. They appreciated my comments and they found them to be valid. Even if I didn't have a base of technical knowledge or terms, I would comment about this reminds me of this or it, it smells of bark on a tree that's you know yeah. just fallen off before decay or whatever. And, and so that actually became something I was so interested in and excited about. They did something which to this day was transformational for my wine career mm -hmm. later in life, which was they sponsored me as one had to be sponsored to attend the uh, very hallowed at the time staunchly British um, organization called the Institutes of Masters of Wine. Oh wow! The MW program. The MW program. Yeah. So I was the. Uh, I had this conversation a few years ago, so decades after the fact, with Jancis Robinson, yeah. who was who is an MW, and she, she there was there more or less the same time, and. She said, oh, yes, you were not popular because I was, <laughs> I was the only American. And then she went on to write in an article about myself and Daphne years later. She said, I, I know that Eric and I were there at about the same time, but I'm sure I would have remembered this impossibly lanky yank. Lanky in my, yank? Lanky <laughs> yank in my classroom. Um, and so that was just extraordinary because I didn't know how pivotal and, and life-altering that opportunity would become. Right. So now I'm, I'm studying music, I'm playing gigs at night, I'm doing my Learning little work at the wine bar sort of between, you know, I'd go in to help clean the place, frankly, in the morning right. and then be set up for lunch. I'd work the lunch shift, stay afterwards to do the tastings. Then I would two, then I would go to practice my music, and then probably two or three nights a week I would play somewhere mm -hmm. live, um, because that's essential, or do some studio work. And then uh, I think it was once or twice a week there were the formal classes, and then throughout the week there was the homework from the classes, which was academic. You know, reading about what are the wine zones that comprise. Germany. Right. Uh, right. What are the great the varietals, the things you know so well. Wow. So really no downtime for you. So no, but that like, suits me. That part yeah. that part was not a sacrifice. Um, I actually do better. You look to uh, fill overbooked. Your time. Yeah. I, I think Sam Bell was a bit that way too. And I think you know, mine was probably more by design and his sometimes by default. Um, sure. but I I enjoy still to this day. A, a sort of controlled frenetic existence yeah and then i sense that i sense that about you so you're in the master of wine program you're you're tasting these things um i want to ask about a couple of a couple of those things but um did you finish the master of wine program what happened so, there as, as you know the program um whether you finish it in in like two plus years or or three or four depending mm -hmm. on on how frequently you go, but there's two basic parts still to this day. There's the, um, I don't know their terms now, but there's basically an academic mm -hmm. uh, part and then the applied practical, practical. part. So I passed 
the um, tasting part, mm -hmm. but not the academic for two reasons. One is um, I timed out on my visa. On visa. Um, and two, because it's England, and, and yes, I'm an American and our language Speaking is English, English. Yes. Uh, you know, the old saying, American and England, two nations separated by a common language. Yeah. And that was very much the case there. So even though um, clearly my native language was English, when I would write as an American about descriptions and do my thesis, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was not... Um, didn't land right. It didn't <laughs> land. Uh, it wasn't viewed as academically sound and credible as if it had been uh, more British. Sure. But that the main thing was I timed out with the, timed visa, out the visa. But um, I was actually, if I had to pass one of the two, I, I find more joy in passing the, the tasting part than and the it, academic part. It seems part. like that sort of suits you as well. I mean, where, you know, the taste and, and the people behind it. I find myself, as much as I like the theoretical side of, of it, there are parts of it that just don't interest me, you know, and, and I'm not drawn to. And it's really difficult to learn and put out there that, you know, this is the information about this region that I really, you know, I'm not too concerned about. I'm not interested in at this point in my wine journey. And sometimes I think with the theoretical side of, of that program um, and of other, you know, programs that um, you have to find an interest in it or, or give it up. So we're sort of a thing. I, I agree. And I think um, doctors and lawyers would, would share that similarly. The amount of pure cramming of, of facts and figures and, and math and data each yeah. requires and yet what makes them excited is, you know, for a lawyer, perhaps is the trial, you know, a trial right. lawyer right. getting up and, and, and speaking in a way to convince and sway based on, yes, that academic recall of, of facts and figures yeah. and the same for a medical practitioner. Yeah. And there are um, some people that love the other side of it more too, and have a lot of trepidation about the practical, you know, side of, of things too, or the, you know, so it does, it takes all kinds, but I do find that um, you know, when I'm interested in something, particularly in the world of wine, I dive really deep and, and other things, um, it's difficult for me to learn, you know, sort of like you were saying with your recall, you know, you recall things you're really interested in, but then other stuff you, isn't there as much. And I, and I kind of wonder, does that in, in the world of wine, you know, you seem to be focused in places that that others aren't necessarily. And I wonder if, if that's because you're interested in those in those regions, you know, the Roussillon, for mm. for instance, um, I think. Uh, well, what what drew you to the Roussillon? I'm jumping a little bit. We'll oh no, no, but it's good because in fact it's it's so interesting. I take it as highly flattering today, but so many times now, um, fast forward to to today, to current time, my company now 30 years old. Uh, so many people say, "Oh wow." Uh, you do French wine. I, I I know that you're famous for your Spanish wine, and I, I I take that it used to bother me, but now I take it as almost a, a badge of honor because with the the program with the Master Wine MW program, um, in addition to the academics and the tasting there in London, uh, I was encouraged, and you're even required to do junkets to. Um, to Italy, to France, to yeah. Germany, everyone chooses a different place or a place chooses you. So um, 
the I was always um, I think when you know one of the things is if I had stayed in the music business uh, I I'm assuming that being good is not enough even being very good is not enough you need to be lucky you have to have a chance. and I yeah. think if I had stayed in the music business but not having been either good or lucky enough to be a practitioner I would have gone into the role of A and R which sure. is you know a talent scout yeah. and in a lot of ways I, I think I've actually achieved that um, in in my the way I built my company so in that vein of a talent scout you think about Clive Davis yeah. one of the first people he ever signed up as probably one of the greatest talent scouts in the music industry was Janis Joplin right and then years later he signed up Barry Manilow so it's not <laughs> like a cookie cutter it's right. just um, and I kind of love that um, not so much the Barry Manilow analogy but more the Janis analogy mean, but Barry Manilow also appeals to Certain, you know. People well, he has important. the golden ear, of course, and yeah. he knows what will sell. Um, I'm, uh, I tend to follow my personal interests and passion, and then hope it sells. Um, oh. It's a little less uh, calculated. But to answer your question about the Roussillon, from the early days, um, I, I worked for a corporate company first. So when you when you left England. Because you had to leave England. I washed up on the shores of Manhattan. So you went to New York. Late 79. Why New York? Is it just... Uh, family pets? ties. My okay. dad's from there. And, and my uncle had a uh, sofa in a study where oh, I could stay. Important. And yeah, I had been in this big city, having grown up in the, in the south, in smaller yeah. cities. And then a short stint uh, in upstate New York, where my dad's career moved. Okay. Um, and then from upstate New York to, uh, to London... You know, after being in London, you know, I, mean, I, I loved yeah. the, you know, the, the, um, the opportunities and the excitement of a big international sure. city. So I had family ties and, a, and an economic opportunity, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, read free rent right. uh, to go to New York. Um, so it was New York. And I was hired uh, shortly after that because of, I had no practical experience in the wine business. But I was sort of um, an albatross in a good way because I was an American who had worked harvest, who had traveled to Europe. famous European wine regions, who had done a big part of this famous MW course. Right. And so I was kind of a novelty. And so I was uh, offered a, a low-level entry job mm -hmm. at a Fortune 100 com uh, company called Hubline, who... Hubline. Hubline. Okay. Yeah, based in Connecticut still to this okay. day. And, and they made their fame and fortune by creating a little brand called Schmirdoff Vodka. I see. A little known offshoot brand, yeah. So in those days, you know, it, mm -hmm. was, it was the cash flow of that highly successful brand that allowed them the opportunity that they pursued with, with uh, great gusto to have a sort of fine wine... Division. division. I see. And it was great timing because they had just formed that fine wine division. Uh, and I was this young uh, Reed. We can get them for cheap. Sure. <laughs> um, just back from overseas. But I had been tasting all these wines and I had been to these regions that my colleagues were brushing up on in order to sell the wines from. Right. But I had been there. I'd worked the harvest. You knew on, those. I knew them. Yeah. So I was hired. 
And uh, I was there almost 90 years. And by the time I was wow. my late 20s, I was in charge of a portfolio of $80 million worth of revenue to the company. That's huge. So what did, so as a new division, what was the focus? What was the goal? What did fine wine mean? I mean, uh, that was around 1980, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. so, so what did fine wine mean? Was that French wine? Was that yeah, it's a great question. So the company, exactly. So the most of the DNA of the company was, the company owned um, Beaulieu, BV, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Inglenook. So oh, wow, there, was, okay. there was the American kind of side of the fine wine, right. classic, especially the, in those days. I, I yeah. knew and met and tasted with Andre Chelichev wow. at BV. And, and so, you know, BV was, it was like uh, America's, um, you know, classified growth from Bordeaux really equivalent. And, and deservedly so, true. They were great wines, especially in those decades. Yeah. They were arguably their best. So this, this wonderful uh, opportunity and this division, uh, we were the original importers uh, for Bouchard Perry Fils, which is oh, now, right. you know, it's had, like, like the music of the decades, it's had its golden it's had days, its, it's, it's, it's meager days. And then, of course, when the company was, in my opinion, rescued by uh, Joseph Alrio and his family, um, it's now back to its yeah. glory days of being one of the, the most sought after uh, vineyard landowners and producers in Burgundy. So we had Bouchard Père, we had La Doucette from the Loire. Sure. Um, I personally brought Henriot, Joseph Henriot's own champagne into the company. Uh, we were the importer for Christian Moex. Wow. So I was going two or three times a year to France and, and had the privilege and pleasure both of, of dining with Christian and his wife in Pomerol wow. at their home. Um, so we, you, were, you were getting to travel again to Europe and this time actually legally, I guess, and working. It was remarkable. Yeah. I, I, to this day, um, even if I had gone on to something other than wine, I was given such a great opportunity, um, and those were heady days, you know. Uh, business was good for everyone, uh, the economy was good, wine was exciting, uh, growth was, you know, measured in, you know, in, in like 18, 20% annually, whether you sure. worked hard or not, and it was just great. So the fine wine division, um, Chapoutier, was part of that division a few years later. Huh. Uh, then wow. the company bought a, a family-owned company devoted to Italian wine. So in short order, I was tasting and meeting with Antonio Mastroverdino hmm. in Campania really? and Livia Fuluga and Bruno Ciaretto in Piemonte. So it was just an extraordinary experience. And during it all, were you starting to sort of zero in on things that interested you more or less? I mean, that you're covering a wide area, you're getting to see a lot of, a lot of Europe, it sounds like. Yeah, and keep in mind, you know, on, on the, on the uh, paycheck and with the powerful calling card of Hubline, yeah. um, I was able to be important to blue chip wine producers, as I said, like sure. the, the owners yeah, yeah. of Chateau Petrus or yeah. the Bouchard family or the Chapoutier family. Um, now, when I decided to cut the ties to the corporate world and go solo, here I am, Eric Solomon, 
you know, used to, used to <laughs> driving, you know, an exotic, rare, mm-hmm. expensive car. And now, you know, it's, it's me on my own. Right. And uh, it's very different. So I realized in short order that, number one, I couldn't just roll up to a famous estate in, in, in Bordeaux or Burgundy or the Rhone for that matter. Um, less so in the road, but yeah, a famous estate in, kind of in Champagne or... and say, I'm, you know, I'm Eric Solomon, I'm 30 years old and I am an importer. Mm-hmm. I just started. I have no money. Uh, I have no history to, um, to prove anything to you. Yeah. But so the bottom line to answer your question, I decided to dig into my uh, love for that Lewis and Clark experience. And I saw regions that nobody had paid attention to in, in a way that today, still to this day, uh, influenced me that Kermit Lynch did. Absolutely. So the, the mm-hmm. wine journey or you know. the wine journey. I mean, Kermit combined. Um, it's a little different, you know, because when he was importing small growers from Burgundy, that was truly new ground. In America by the time you know with a few years age difference by the time I started you know nobody was going to write um, a biography and years later and say Eric Solomon helped discover and put Burgundy on the map in America Burgundy was Mm -hmm. but I I was able to do that for the Roussillon and the Languedoc and 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 Provence and the Rhone Rhone. I mean and that's um, that's a, a really great interest to me because um, I think it's sort of it's a time and a place kind of a thing, you know, in that the wine tastes and consumption in the U.S. is changing, you know, because it really was a lot about status, you know. Even you, you talk about needing almost to show up at famous chateaus with fancy cars, and and it's it was still it's still very status driven, and in the U.S. it was, but it, it was changing, I think, at the time. Um, what to to back up just a little what made you decide to, um, you say, cut the ties, you know, hang out your own shingle mm-hmm. kind of thing. Where's the entrepreneurial um, drive come from? Because not everybody has that. You know, you, it's not that. It's definitely not a family DNA because, as I said, my parents were academicians, um, not entrepreneurs, not, not business people. Right. Um, and, and they I, thought for you, you know, a, a steady progression through school into career, I mean, that was their vision, although they supported you in, in the music pursuit. I think de facto artists, yeah. uh, be they chefs, cooks, um, mm-hmm. drummers, musicians, painters, uh, I think de facto we're entrepreneurs because, you want to your own thing. because we, if we aren't, you're, you're, you're not going to make a living yeah. at what you love. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um, I didn't realize I could be or would be a successful entrepreneur, but I didn't think about what if I'm not. For me, right. it was just obvious. Yeah, and you had to do it. I and, had to do and, it. You know, and, and sometimes it's, you just, you know, by chance and, and happenstance. And, and then so, so you, you go out on your own and you, you're going to Europe and you're saying, I can't really afford to I have no go money. to Bordeaux, I can't go to, to, you know... I couldn't afford to go to Burgundy. Bordeaux even to drink the wines I used to have at lunch with the producers I represented on, right. on Hugh Blind's dime. Got you. So, so now you have to find something else. Absolutely. And that's what drove you to Roussillon? To... 
you Where'd know, you go first? I, I could get very romantically poetic here and say that I've always been, you know, it's the Southern thing. So I've, I've uh. always been drawn to the South in America, in France, Provence, um, in Italy, even though I, I still to this day, Nebbiolo was one of my three, yeah. you know, desert island grapes. Um, you know, the, the entrepreneurial talent scout um, adventure seeker in me was more interested in Calabria and Apulia and Sicily. Sure. You know, you wanted to go where, where like there's kind of, kind of um, tread new, new ground mm-hmm. you know, kind of a thing. You had to start somewhere. I mean, mm-hmm. you have a company with no producers. It's a brand new company. Yep. What, where did you start? I, I don't so, know. I honestly don't know. Yeah, we, you and I haven't had this conversation, and, and nor have I had it with myself in a long time. So thank you for asking it. It's, it's a great uh, jar of the, of the memory. But while I was with Hubline, one of my um, unofficial uh, roles at Hubline in, in the later years was I was being allowed to share my opinion about trends and up-and-coming regions and or producers. Uh, And there was one in particular, while still at Hubline, that I found, I fell in love with, I was convinced was going to do great things, was in a sleepy, bucolic, gorgeous, um, you know, right out of a Peter Mayle book, Provençal Village, in the Luberon. Now, the Luberon... Mm. you know, is now part of the Rhone, the Valley of the Rhone, the Vaucluse. But back then, it wasn't even an appellation. It wasn't even recognized by the French as a, it was a VDQS. VDQS. Exactly. And I found an estate there. Um, I fell in love with everything. The the aesthetics, the house, the long alley of of trees planted, you know, by Napoleon to give shade to his his marching army that led to this old Provençal, you wouldn't call it a chateau, a beautiful mast. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the ubiquitous olive trees on this hillside and old bush vines of Grenache on the other. And that estate I, I had teed up to bring in through Hubline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the corporate wheels often turn more slowly than an entrepreneur's. You know, they didn't yeah. need this. This was not going to move the needle at, at on the P&L right. statement at the shareholders meeting. Right. So, you know, it was kind of like, yes, Eric, yes, yes. You know, and they were kind of like, like oh, you know, give this dog cute. a bone yeah. and let him let him talk to them. But do we really need this? What is this? Right. And this at that point, independently, yeah. I had decided to, to, you know, to try and go on my own. Mm-hmm. So they were teed up. Yeah. The relationship had been developed. Uh, I've been wooing yeah. them. I just didn't have you this didn't have company okay. with money and yeah. distribution clout day one right. to drop them into. Right. And to my great surprise and, and joy, they said, we're interested in working with you, whether your card says this Fine. big company or this entity you've called yourself European Sellers. So they were my first producer. That was that and was and that was the the producer Chateau Val Joannis. Huh, Val Joannis. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And so you didn't have distribution. You didn't have any. They of had never. They had never exported. I had never imported. I see. 
And but you knew how to. You knew the how it worked. Fortunately, I had again an extraordinary. Um, I I truly believe that had I even if I had financial resources, had I just decided to go into the wine business in the way I did 30 years ago for myself and skipping the corporate um, experience. Yeah. I don't want to say I would have failed, but it would have been very different. Uh, that was such an invaluable. It was like my MBA. Yeah. That was my triple MBA. Well, because there are things they do that really are important. Like you have to have a business mind somewhere in there. You know, it. chefs love to cook, but then when they want their own restaurant, they have to learn about fire codes. They have HR. to learn about HR. They have to learn about cash flow. Payroll. Payroll. Yeah. So I got such a great MBA, really, is yeah. the right analogy, yeah. um, in those eight or nine corporate years that served me so well when I started. Yeah. Plus, to be honest, the distributors that I was important to, not because I was Eric Solomon, but because my, my card... And that company behind me meant millions of dollars of business to them every year. I was talking to the owners or CEOs or CFOs of huge distributorships like Southern Wine and Spirits. Right. And then when I went off on my own, I called them and they returned my call. Right. And many of them gave me my first chance. Well, connection, I mean, connections really are, mm -hmm. you know, important that, you know, you can write a business plan, but without those experiences and those connections, it, it couldn't move the same way. Are we going to write a book together? We might. We might need we might. to. It, I mean, it actually, really it fun. might be a mini series. <laughs> mini, very mini series. Uh, a one so, season, one episode mini series. Yes, I think that's about what we could do. It's about what we could hold people's interest exactly. in, I think. And, um, and the funding to go with it. With, for sure. Well, funding's another, you know, thing. So, you, I mean, the wine import business, is it, is it cash up front? So you've, you've got this new, new producer, said, this is great, I want to buy your wine. They said, is it on terms? Do you have to buy it's it? It's a great it question. Um, and this is where I can play the proverbial ignorance is bliss card. Um, and I have to, again, I, can't, I hate to keep on coming back to the, to the corporate experience, but there was the, the um, CFO of my hundred plus million dollar division of Ublime mm -hmm. that for some reason liked me. So when I left, he, he was like a mentor to me yeah. uh, from the business side of things. He said, I, you know, I, he didn't need to help me in terms of what wines I liked or what my abilities right. to taste wine. So he convinced me that with my persuasion, my, my persistence, my personality, um, because I was giving people that had never sold in America, um, they were, you know, we were equally matched. Right. Nobody ever heard of me and nobody ever heard of them uh, in each other's right. eyes. They had to um, prove it too, We, we both said, let's do this together. So I was so fortunate. So the, the actual upfront cost, which could never happen today, where I, my office was in my um, bedroom mm -hmm. in, in, in Brooklyn, where I lived at the time, I literally would type and send telexes 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we, we evolved to faxes, yeah. but telexes. And um, I, I would sell the wine and, and when it was sold, the producers allowed me, it was totally good faith. It was like the diamond industry. It was all it based like on it. good faith. And so I would basically be a, a liaison. I hate the word broker, but in terms of a business model, yeah. it was really a brokerage system model. where I, I would find the producer. I would discuss how do we have the best opportunity to launch your wine in the United States, mm -hmm. what we're going to call Frank Stitt um, in Alabama, who's predisposed to great artisanal wines from the South, and Jeremiah Tower, all sure. these people that were my customers in the corporate world that I knew wanted things that were not corporate. Yeah. Um, so it was a leap of faith for everyone. So there was really, my, my operating expenses were my travel. Right. And my travel. That's it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Travel, travel to buy and source, uh, and blend in some cases sure. with wineries and travel to sell. And then shipment, I guess. Well, shippers. the distributor paid the, um, you know, again, this again, wouldn't happen again, but, but basically model, I'm, I'm presenting a wine to a distributor, a distributor and their cost includes my margin. And, the ship, and, and then they are organizing the logistics and paying the freight duties, taxes, customs. And then they would pay the producer. And once the producer, that was the, the safety net for the producer. Mm -hmm. Once the producer was paid, then I would receive my... Then you would I paid. would be paid. Gotcha. And the wine would already be at the distributor, though. Yes. That huh. That's, a, that's amazing. And like you said, it's sort of a lucky time and place because you... Can't do it do that, that way today. anymore. Huh. Okay, so you have one producer, you're in southern France. What next? Well, you know how it is with... Um, I think, you know, there, this is where the organic, the beautiful organic uh, synergy of our, our end of the wine world happens. This producer is friends with someone of common philosophy and spirit in the Côte de Vaultou next right. doors. And that producer, you know, is, is buying barrels or concrete vats from a guy who is also selling them to this guy in the Roussillon. Right. And they meet at wine fairs and, and they would talk among themselves as producers always do. And what about the U.S.? Do you sell there? Yeah, we're working, we're working with, this, with this, this young guy, Eric Solomon. Are you getting paid? Yeah, it's great. We shipped wine and we got paid. Oh, yeah, would you give working. me his name? And so it really was, I don't want to call it a snowball because it was, you know, it was methodical and it was slow, but it was definitely um, word of mouth um, and reputation. Yeah. And what were, what were you looking for in those early, in those, it's 1990, 91, mm -hmm. I guess. 90, And, and what, what kind of, what scratched your itch, so to speak, as far as when you met a new producer, was it the person? Was it a particular wine? You know, what made it into the European seller's portfolio? I think it's all the above. I mean, I think there, there's no mantra. There, was, there never was nor is an official sort of Mission manifesto oh, yeah. or mantra for the company, except, you know, our, our 
our mantra, which came as a result of an interview, and apparently I don't even recall it, but uh, <laughs> for the Food and Wine magazine, yeah. Best Importer, um, in the interview on the phone with the writer Richard Nally, somewhere in that interview, I talked about, for me, what's important in a wine is, is what's now become a, an overused phrase and even a marketing cliche, but sense of place. Right. But I didn't say sense of place. I said, for me, it's more important that there is place over process. Right. And that, that he wrote That's that stuff. in the article and people remembered it. And, and I really embraced my own words and we actually registered it. As, oh, wow. as okay. a de facto trademark of our what what's important to us. So the place, mm, the, place. the place, the people, the wine, and often, as you know, because you watch young emerging producers evolve yeah. as a wine director, you know, if you go into a winery, it's, it's easy to see beauty in something that's already finished, polished, and, and near perfect. Yes. What I love is all the the rough cuts in a studio, all the outtakes. Yeah. I like to go into a winery and I, t I try and taste everything. Even though they want to show you what they want to show you, I, I'm like, what's in that vat? Yeah. What's the deal with that amphora? What is that old barrel made of chestnut? And I that's literally yeah. try and taste. It drives people crazy because they have an agenda this is what they think I should have, or they want to sell, or want to export. Right. And I like to taste everything. And I wonder, does some of that go back to, you know, when those people were presenting wines, and you're working in this wine shop in London, you know, I, I found that when people are presenting wines, they're, in some cases, they're amazing wines, but often they're the wines they're incentivized to move and to sell, and, and you have to sort of search out those more special things you know, the real wines the real wines yeah. or you know the we we joke all the time about there's like one barrel of this made sort of thing that's not the wine they're trying to to move or to push but they're they're the kind of wines that you are mean like you did with my wife daphne and her cellar with this special wine similarly you and she made similarly. Uh, that, that one barrel that that spoke to you uh yes similarly where um you know that one is the one you know, that I want, that, that I think works for me, you know, that excites me sort of a thing. And I loved, and still, I shouldn't use the past tense, it's probably the part of my job to this day I would miss most if I, for whatever reason, wasn't yeah. in the business anymore, which... It's, it's searching that out that... Well, it's, it's just, I love to, um, it's like going through, um, it's like going through a... Um, you know what it is? It's like going through, and I haven't had this experience, sadly, but it's, I can imagine going through a grandparent's house and, you know, an old house that's kind of rambling and, yeah. and meandering, and you make your way to the third floor and, and the ceiling heights are getting lower and lower, and then there's that, that um, door into the attic and the cord, yeah, you know, yeah, that you pull yeah, down and then the stairs kind of unfold, and, like, you go up there, and you kind of climb up and you're watching your head because it's just so big and and you're looking for that cord that's going to turn the light on and you mm -hmm. finally by by feel you find the cord you pull it and just as you pull it you stub your toe and and the light <laughs> right. comes on you look down at what you've stubbed your toe on and there's a van gogh right 
Yeah. Now that's a very poetic but it story, but it, it kind of is what happens. Um, I have found, not, not Van Gogh's, but I have found some of my most, by my definition, interesting, compelling, um, story-worthy missions to uh, introduce to the world wines that way. Where the wine didn't even exist, the components did, but the wine that we know today, I mean, a, a, a case in point is a wine you've been a fan of, and I thank you for giving it a home for decades, is Domaine La Janasse. Sure. I think it was my second or third estate I signed really? up in my okay. company. Okay, now it's famous. It's well, yeah, an icon. I mean, people know But Genasse. back in 1990, when I went there, it was the, the, the father, mm -hmm. who was really a, a farmer, and they bottled wine at the estate, but they didn't really have a history, a long history of being a, a, winery. a winery, exactly. Yeah. They, were, they were grape growers, farmers, vignerons. Um, and the dad had his young son, Christophe Sabon, in the room, and were tasting, in that same fashion, all the materials every barrel, every foudre, every yeah. concrete vat. And there's one that stood out to me, and, and I said, what is this? And he, he went and found an old map, mm -hmm. and, and it was perfect. Yeah. It was like something worthy of a Ken Burns documentary where the yes. map is rolled yeah. out, and aha. And so he said, this, is, this wine you're tasting is, is all Grenache. Mm -hmm. It's from a vineyard planted at the time, probably 80 years ago or 70 years ago. And it is right on the border of Bocastel um, okay. Vineyard and, and the place, the vineyard and site of Bocastel. And the name was very Provençal, it was called Chopin. Chopin, yeah. Uh, and, and I yeah. said, that's just so special. Why can't, why don't you, why can't we make a singular wine? And he said, well, we can't use the name because it's, it's, you know, that's um, public domain. domain. Um, and I said, well, anyway, it's a funny name for, a, for an Anglo for to pronounce. Yeah. So, you, you know, I asked for a piece of paper and I started scribbling. So we just shortened it to Chopin. Right. Not like the um, musician, but C-H-A-U-P-I-N, Chopin. And, and it was born, that cuvee was born that day. One of my day. favorite wines, yeah. And uh, it went on to be, you know, Robert Parker loved it, uh, Jeb Dunnick has loved it, you've loved it, uh, Decanter Magazine, and it's, you know, people that follow Janas, yeah. it's one of their most sought after wines. So it was great to be part of that, that because it, that, it yeah. gave birth to a wine they didn't even have. Yeah, and didn't weren't thinking to have. No. And the son was in the room at the time. He was he was very young, Christoph, but he yeah. sat there uh, because he was you know at a young age when you, as you know, when you work on a farm, yeah, you know as soon as you can walk, you're working, you're doing something for sure. Uh, so he you know he was he came in off the tractor or whatever yeah. he uh, what his chores were that day, and um, you know in a typical metaphor for a family hierarchy, he got the lowest. We were all sitting on wooden boxes on the floor yep, he got boxes. the lowest one um <laughs> but, so but he's taken over i mean he and his sister wonder. isabel that's isabel, one of the yeah. great things about um a company that's now in its third decade 30 years is i've been able to watch with almost a familial pride and satisfaction the passing of the baton first in many cases 
the parents stopping to sell their grapes to a co-op or to a negociant and bottling their wine themselves. Mm -hmm. That's sort of chapter one. And chapter two has been the passing of the baton of those parents, Thanks. like at Janas, like at Chateau Pesquier, like at yeah. so many, to their sons. And now even, yeah, and, and then, you know, I've been to their weddings and sadly right. some of their funerals. And, um, you know, I'm now watching their kids. So the grandchildren of the founders that I started with, so even though Daphne and I don't have children, I have this extended family, you know, in, in France, in Spain, in, in Switzerland, yeah. uh, in Italy, where I also worked for years of this extended family of, of wine people that kind of complete my otherwise numerically small immediate family. So that's really fun. And, and what do you see happen most with generational change? I see everything. I everything. see good and bad. Yeah. Uh, mostly good, but well, what is bad generational change? Is it like becoming corporate? Um, in my world, it's there's there's a little bit of that, but I would say in my world, um, the thing is, and this I don't mean this to sound pejorative, but it's important to evolve, and evolve doesn't need need to mean get fancier or more modern or more modern or more perfect. Yeah. Sometimes for me, actually, it's the opposite. True evolution, it's like coming back to the roots, something pure, beautiful, simple. It's like cuisine. The older I get, the less complicated, fancy, um, architecturally yeah. engineered meals I like. Right. And but you give me, you give me a, a, a great or, yeah. product, a fish, a piece of chicken, whatever it is, a vegetable. Mm. You know, and, and if you throw in the element of, of a wood fire, I'm happy. Right. And I would say that from the early days, and it wasn't even fashionable then, just as a natural course of my work, I was drawn to wines that tended to be less interventional in terms of a lot of makeup, uh, a lot of new wood, or all the tricks of a of a modern winery, not tricks sure. in a, but just things like sorting table and sorting you know, tables and and um, things that make I, it I like something. And, and you know this about me and my wines, and 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 it applies to architecture and design. I love something I I have coined because it's a term that works for me, which is something I call polished rusticity, mm -hmm. and I love that in wines. Okay. I do too, and I, I tend to find that the wines that appeal to me most have personality. You know, that they they are themselves. They they couldn't be mistaken for another one of the same region or, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. and I find when they get too textbooky, I guess is maybe the word or something like that. Um, I think I, I, I think things can get so overly polished. They're they're technically brilliant yeah but they no longer good Lose give soul. me what i call my goosebump moment or it lacks an a soul that i look for and and for me a soul in a wine means it doesn't have to be perfect it needs to be it needs to be something that moves me and and i don't want flaws you know obvious flaws in wines right. but i don't want something that's been polished so much that it's just shiny 
and I'm, I'm afraid to touch it. Right. Fancy. Too fancy. Too fancy. Uh, so uh, I also wanted to, to touch base on a story you and I have talked about a number of times. But so you started in France with with your import company. Mm-hmm. Very early on, you moved into Spain, and, and I think very early Actually, on. Actually, before that was Italy. Before that was Italy. Yeah. Okay. So where, where did you go in Italy? I know this is a chapter that you, you know, don't do I'm, Italian wines now. I don't, and and the, the, I don't. I say work do you with, don't import Italian wines now? <laughs> I, I do depletions of yes, Italian wines. I mean, uh, honestly, I know we were talking with with um, uh, the chef recently, yeah. uh, Michael Tusk, who's here for the same. Who event. Uh, is here for this event, and of course, um, we he and Frank Stitt and I share a lot of things in a generic sense in common. Americans who really formed their current career by traveling to the old world. Right. In his case, it was France, but in particular Italy, and, and in Frank Stitt's case, like mine, the south of France and Provence. And so after France, I, I always loved Italy. It was one of the countries when I was living in Italy, I would visit both for personal uh, vacation reasons yeah. as well as part of the MW program. It was one of my favorite uh, junkets to do junkets, was yeah. was visit and keep in mind too when I was at Hubline, we by acquisition bought a family business that became part of Hubline that had some of what are today the most legendary producers in Italy and I would go three times a year mm-hmm. so I've been traveling to Italy and the wine countries of Italy as long as I have France and longer than I have Spain really okay. Um, so the reason I extracted myself um, professionally from Italy was um, it was pretty simultaneous with, with my discovery of my now wife Daphne's wine and, and the consequential um, attention turned to Spain right. was that I was very good at my work as a talent scout in Italy, but there were so many living legends Uh, the category uh, was it was was, it it was very well it was very well um, attended to already there were people operating at the highest level Uh, you know Marco de Grazia at the time uh, Vias Leonardo Locasio you weren't going to introduce people to this new region called Barolo they already knew about it Maybe. True, but Barolo, but Barolo, for example, is a great example. That would be like Bordeaux. Nobody needed Eric Solomon to to bring in a, board, uh, a Bordeaux or a Barolo. Right. But I was, just for the record, the first importer in America for Morolino de Scanzano. Oh, very good. So duly I, noted. <laughs> um, so I love Italy. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite places to to eat, to drink, to uh, to to love life, to bicycle. Uh, to hike, it's it's just a um, it's a definite uh, perpetual bucket list destination. But it was the right decision because the category was already well attended to. Understood. Um, I would have hopefully still carved out a meaningful book, but unbeknownst to me, um, there was not the same attention and work at that point established for Spain. Yeah, and so, and so I turned to Spain, turned to Spain. by and, total circum uh, consequence. And the circumstantial consequence, your you mentioned your wife Daphne, 
had a winery or has a winery in in Spain, and and that was your entree into Spain. How did that? How did that work? I mean, she wasn't your wife. You didn't know her. She was then. neither a a, a, um, a producer of mine at the time nor a spouse. <laughs> um, and what happened was she had read um, through different publications that I was a, a sort of emerging talent in the import business, a young young Turk, right. you know, kind of clawing his way through the ranks of, of interesting wines from France yeah. and Italy. And she contacted me um, and in doing so sent a, a short handwritten note and a bottle of uh, a bottle of wine which was her for all intents and purposes, first vintage of Chlorosmus. So it's been 1990? 1990 vintage. We, it's interesting because we didn't meet for some years later, but she started her pursuit of this, this wonderful, crazy same project um, more or less the same time. So she has celebrated 30 vintages, and I've sure. just celebrated 30 years of my company. So she sent this bottle unsolicited to my little hovel of an office in Chelsea in Manhattan. I was away traveling, as was mm -hmm. the case most of the year. I came back in, in spring, whatever year that was, and I found a wall of wine that had arrived without my asking the people, you know, sure. looking to be represented. And you've as you me, know... You've told me you tasted everything. You, you felt it, you know, you felt you owed it to, to people that took that effort that you would taste, at least taste those wines. I, I did, and I, I know you understand that. Even though um, mathematically I was convinced that the likelihood of something truly monumental by my definition was going to be in one of those boxes, um, because I hadn't done any legwork, they right. just arrived, just and I hadn't it. tasted every bat and barrel. But I, I started pulling corks, and I probably had opened 60 or 70 wines, and I know it sounds silly to probably a lot of people uh, who might be listening, but we talk about tasting and trips and things like that, but it ends up being a lot of work. It feels like work instead of um, maybe a nice day at a wine bar. There was nothing glamorous, I assure you. Yes. That office was very um, unglamorous, and that moment at the end of a day, at the end of a week, a month, a, a, a trimester of travel, I did it because somebody had made those wines, and somebody, it wasn't as obvious or easy, somebody had found a way to get them safely without breaking yeah. through the done. U.S. Post. Yeah, they had um, done legwork. They had done a lot of legwork. And, and I thought, you know, to not respond, they were going to be wondering, did he ever receive it? Right. Did he receive it and just not like it? Um, and I didn't think that was fair. That's very, and it's very so That's I tasted everything and I sent um, a note to everyone, but I finally got to one wine. It was probably three quarters of the way through the tasting. Um, and at that point, as you know, when you're Just you're working that feverishly, yeah. you're not even thinking, you're, you're cutting or pulling off the capsule, yeah. you're uncorking it, it goes in the glass, it goes up to your nose, to your mouth, and you're already you know, next, yeah. subconsciously opening the next bottle. I actually and think I was, it's a great way to taste. I mean, I think mm -hmm. you, things really stand out. Good and bad. It's like speed that. dating. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, uh, without the whistle. Yeah, yeah. And and literally, I was already on, if not manually, psychologically, on to opening the next bottle, and and the wine I had just tasted, literally stopped me, 
So I actually picked up the bottle and looked at it again, and it, it said Clo Erasmus. Mm. Well, I'm a Francophile, French, yeah. I, I spoke French, and I knew that this is probably French. Yeah. Clo Vougeot, Clo Erasmus, Clo yeah. Quelque Chose, whatever. <laughs> and then I'm looking, and it said Priorat, and I'm like, well, I, I'm pretty good with even the non-Appalachian names of places in France. And then it said product of Spain. Hmm. So I'm like, what is this? Yeah. And I tasted it again, and it stopped me. I did finish the tasting. You finished but, the, the last quarter. Mm -hmm, and, and, and I think there were five positive responses in general, mm. but none that moved me like that wine. It was truly um, one of those moments where I was stopped in my, my Venice tracks. Yeah. And so she had put a little handwritten note in there, Daphne Glorian and a fax number. Now, keep in mind from when she dispatched that and I tasted it, it was, she knows better um, and remembers better, but it was probably between three and five months had passed. Right. She had almost forgotten she had sent it. Um, she was somewhere traveling in Burgundy or somewhere and this fax found her. Mm. And I said, I just tasted this wine. I don't know, could, could, could I, would you have a hundred cases? Mm. And that was her 1990 vintage, and her total production that year was like 102 cases. Right. <laughs> but I'm like, great, two percent samples. Yeah. yeah. So, so would, had she sold some of it, or were you able to get 100 cases? Um, That'd be a tall order even today. <laughs> no, the great thing is she had um, actually there had been one sort of experimental vintage prototype vintage the, the year before, before that she made kind of communally with Alvaro Palacios and Rene Barbier and Joseph Luis Perez yeah. from Martinet that where each person's vineyards that they owned individually kind of those grapes went into the communal vat literally right. and so the 89 uh, Dolphy from Alvaro Dolphy. the 89 Mogador the 89 Mas Martinet and the 89 Erasmus are yeah. all the same They're all wine. the same wine with different labels different labels right. um, so she had sold some of that her first customer keep in mind the Priorat even Spaniards didn't know what and right. where the Priorat was her first customer because she had been working as a liaison source um, person for Wilson Daniels, yeah. based in France, and she was dealing with Biondi Santi, mm -hmm. uh, the great yeah. iconic producer of Brunello. And so um, they had started a small import company, and so her first customer for Chlorosmus was Biondi Santi. Wow. That's and I was second. You were second. <laughs> That's amazing. And so you, you bought some of the wine, you were selling some of the wine. How long until you met? Almost two years before we met. We, we corresponded. Um, she came to New York. Uh, she was working for an English master of wine as his boots on the ground in, in France to go check on the, the estates that he represented in his import company. And she was on a trip. She came to the United States, and we were supposed to meet. And I was in Chicago, and um, it was winter, or near mm -hmm. winter, and so I was stuck there with a the snowstorm. Yeah. So she made it to my office, but I didn't get back in time. So uh -huh. the elapsed time was nearly two years before we would meet in person. And she then was already five vintages 
into but making four, four, five, yeah, a good four, yeah. Okay, so then when did you, when, where did you meet her? Wait. In my hovel of an office oh, in New so York you, on you a did. subsequent trip, okay. she came back and we met there. And then, um, you know, we talked and um, we talked about, you know, my scouting trips and she said, well, you know, in the context of working for that MW and Wilson mm -hmm. Daniels, she knew lots of good growers that were not represented. So we actually met in France. I took a plane to France and we See. met in Avignon and made a trip to the Roustillon together wow. and to Sancerre. My first oh, Sancerre really? producer came because it was uh, Pascal Jolivet, uh -huh. who already was well represented in America. By but Pascal. Um, I can't remember. I think it was. It was no, it was probably Wilson Daniels Wilson at Daniels the time. Okay. And Pascal was lovely, and, and we had a meal in, in Chavignol and in his cellars. And Pascal said, well, of course, I, I, I'm working exclusively in the United States, but um, I've got a young grower that I buy wine or grapes from. You should check him out. And so it was that, so kind, that, of, that kind of thing. Uh, word of mouth introduction. Well, did Daphne also take you into to Spain some? Yeah, so of course, um, scouting trip together in France, but of course my first, not my first time in Spain, but my first wine trip to Spain was to see this only winery I've represented from right. Spain, which was Cleo Rasmus. Um, and then once there, of course, meet my neighbors uh, at Capsanas oh, yeah. in the Monsant mm -hmm. next door. Here are my friends that make wine in the Priorat. Um, this is Juan Carlos uh, Lopez de la Calle from Artadi, uh, Peter Sisek. I mean, so huh. the opportunity through a fellow winemaker to meet like-minded winemakers who were yet to be represented in America was great. So, and you were sort of opening up new regions too, to some mm -hmm. degree, I would think, or they're Always. showing the U.S. Uh, uh, people, you know, new regions in Spain. Um, and Spain must have, I mean, and to this day, I think Spain is sort of the wild west as far as what it could be, as far as you get a wine from this region, it could still be a lot of things outside of a few regions that have some really strong rules. Yeah. Um, other regions don't have strong rules. They have maybe some tradition or... Um, More tradition than rules. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I find that, you know, Italy's a little similar. You know, um, people still don't know what they're going to get mm -hmm. out, of, out of a region. And it could be different. Except maybe in Tuscany or, right. or Piemonte. Yeah. But you still need to know those rules, I guess. Very much so. That. And one of the things that immediately appealed to me about Spain, which did in Italy um, and does in places I don't work, like Greece, for example, yeah, yeah. is I am I am just infatuated with and sort of a self-appointed Pied Piper of all things heirloom. Yes. You know, I love, as you know, I love indigenous, historic, uh, bordering on extinct, waiting to be rescued. Yeah. Um, Rescue grapes. Rescue grapes. And and so Spain, right up there with Italy and Greece, has more heirloom, indigenous, historic, possibly could go extinct varietals than any country in the world. And, and I think the people that take the time and the care uh, you know, to care for those grapes and to bring them back from the brink, those are probably the kind of farmers and producers that... 
we're kindred souls. We, we become yeah. kindred souls. Absolutely. So you're in Spain now. You're, you've got a great French portfolio. You know, things are going well. You're growing your business. Um, what was the next turning point, you know, for you? At this point, it was still called European Sellers. Mm -hmm. It's still it to still this day. Is. I founded a company with the, the arguably unimaginative but, but um, functional name of European Sellers because at that time, all my work was in Europe and sure. I represented small sellers from Europe. Um, it was really only years, a few years later when, when tasting with people like Robert Parker um, and, and others, Jancis Robinson mentioned it too, that they both had commented that, you know, it's, it's you, Eric Solomon, that the growers know and, and work with. And when Robert Parker would write about my wines, he would say, you know, I just did this tasting with Eric Solomon and mm -hmm. it's an Eric Solomon selection. So it was really um, the trade and the press that said, you should just really refer to yourself with your own name, like Kermit Lynch, like right. Robert Katcher, Robert like Robert Chatterton, like Marc de Grazia. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's like a chef. It's the restaurant can have a name, but people follow you. Yeah, yeah, they do in your palate. Yeah. Exactly. And then, so you also formed another company, I think, called Indigo Wine. So exactly. So my company is thirty years old, and and um, you know what's what's so rewarding and yet um, inspiring in terms of what's next is that so many of the, the the wines that I like to say went from co-op, you know, yeah. if it was out of cooperative, generation. to cult. Yeah. So I have wines that have gone from <laughs> co-op to cult, and I've got producers like Domaine Lajanas, Domaine Marcou. Erasmus, which were, you know, indie, unknown indie wineries and people and regions and so forth that fortunately because of people like yourself at Blackberry and, and, and uh, wine merchants that took a chance on this young importer and, and my yeah. growing portfolio, they've now have a, a solid footing in America and globally. So they are now what almost become legacy brands. Um, they're, 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 they're beautiful and, and, you know, my allocations actually in many cases have gone down and I'm happy because it means they have there a balanced so yeah. distribution portfolio, but being ever curious and always wondering, you know, a la Lewis and Clark, what's on the other side of that yeah. hill, um, I wanted to, and I've always continued to represent the people that were there in the beginning that I that I still champion but mm -hmm. need less fanfare than they once did mm -hmm. and I'm always looking for someone that needs that attention fanfare. and that fanfare and that um, embrace so I treated it really getting back to the where we started which is yeah. music I think about in in the film world but specifically the the music world and even the fashion world but the, the inspiration was the music world. You know, you have the major labels. Yeah. Um, so artists get signed up and either are unknown and are already put into a major label company or often when that book gets so crowded, the owners, the management team of those companies create or the artists themselves yeah. who can't get published in the way they feel they should 
Led Zeppelin was a great example of that. The Beatles later with Apple, the artists say, we want control over who we are, our sound. We don't want to sell out. We don't want to do things we don't want to do. Um, and so I created an indie label called Indigo. Okay. And so Indigo is a portfolio within European sellers that is kind of a, um, it's an incubator for sure. what I call my generation next. It can be a little nimble. You know. It's nimble and, and my hope and great reward will be somebody in Indigo becomes a legacy producer. Right. And that's fun. It's, it's, it's your own funnel sort of system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think of, you know, producers it's that a are test relatively kitchen. new. Chefs yeah. have test kitchens. Yeah, they test dishes and things mm -hmm. before they put them on the menu, yeah. so to speak. So, so what is next? What's exciting right now to someone like you who's looking over the next horizon? And one of it, it's a great question, and I appreciate you asking it because it's, of course, I'm always excited. I, I love the past, but I, I like the future more. Yeah. Um, and so, with having named my company European Sellers, um, and then with the branding becoming more focused on the moniker Eric Solomon Selections, when I created Indigo, you know, think about it. When I went, when I started importing wines, which is a big place in my heart as you know right now, uh, looking at Switzerland yes. and, and the, the extraordinary wines that have never been exported and that, mm -hmm. you know, between the two of us, we're single-handedly, that's more than a single hand, but together you and I are bringing them to consumers' attention. Um, technically, Switzerland is not part of Europe from a technical point of view, mm -hmm. and the Republic of Macedonia mm -hmm. and the highest altitude vineyards in Chile, in the Elki Valley, yes, and now sense. Lebanon, all of these are places I have new projects. Wow. And so Indigo is great because there's no uh, nomenclature that says Europe. So if I wanted to, if I find a wine from Tasmania. Hmm. So you're traveling further afield. Have you the, been traveling to these places or is there... I, I have physically, I, I never bring in wines from anywhere. I don't kiss the dirt in the ground myself. The only exception so far is Lebanon because of the political sure. um, challenges. Um, but it's been a place, uh, it's been on my radar, the, the country, the culture, the people, the cuisine. Yeah. And there's a rich and very old tradition of winemaking there and and very few wines i mean make it to this very country. few one, in this country everyone, and know. most of them that come to this country because it's it's a security blanket in a way so many of them had hired great consultants uh from france from bordeaux yeah. and so they're encouraged to make wines with cabernet uh, and, and French oak and French oak and Cabernet and so forth. And, and I am, um, starting a project with one of the oldest wineries in all of Lebanon mm. called Domaine de Tourelle in the Becca Valley, uh -huh. the highest altitude vineyards of Sanso and crazy white varieties that nobody's ever heard of. And we are launching that, um, late fall. Wow. I'm super excited about that. I can see that. If, I mean, I know people will be listening to this, but I can see your excitement, like your face. As I've seen over the years when you talk about 
things, wines. That I'm really a terrible poker you. player. Yes, I, I, I can see that. I'm excited about it. It gets me excited uh, for for that wine and, and for everything that's that's coming. Well, Eric, um, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, thank you for what you do for us and for Blackberry. Uh, thank you for your support of um, the event that we're currently uh, taking part in. Um, it's a great one. It means a lot. Well, it's, it is a beautiful event. It's called Passing the Torch. It supports the Sam Bell Fellowship. And uh, you've been a, a strong supporter of, of that since its uh, beginning. And we debuted a wine during this event that's very special to us, uh, a special cuvee of Chlorasmus for Sam. Uh, and thank you. Thank you for, for your friendship and thank you for your wine. Thank you, Andy. This has been great. And, and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't end by saying were not for Blackberry Farm uh, and a few others, but Blackberry in particular, I would be the curator of a very well-stocked wine museum. So thank you for giving my producers, most importantly, um, a great platform to reach the consumer. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on theblackberrymagazine.com. Make a great day.